For the message today, we're turning again to that last book of the New Testament, that mysterious but powerful book called The Revelation. The Revelation. We're calling this series, Everything is Going to Be All Right. Don't you want to know that everything's going to be all right? I do. I really do. And for the follower of Jesus Christ, we have that assurance. If we're followers of Jesus, the story is going to end well. Jesus is going to take care of us. It's all going to be all right. This series now is in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. And in chapters 2 and 3, the risen Christ, through an angel and through the apostle John, is delivering messages to seven churches that existed in the first century. All seven of these churches are in what is now Turkey, what was then called Asia Minor. And through the word of Jesus, there is something being said to all seven of these churches. These seven churches represent all churches of all places of all time. And that means these messages are for our church. These messages are for you and me. They belong to us. Uh, the, the, the message today is to a church in a city called Sardis. Sardis was a very important uh, city, at least it had been at one time. It was the capital of its region called Lydia. Uh, it had been a wealthy and influential city, at least it had been historically. But by the time John wrote the Apocalypse or the Revelation, all of that was in the past. The title of today's message is this, Reputation versus Reality. Reputation versus Reality. In your life, are there times that reputation doesn't match reality? In my life, are there times where reputation doesn't match reality? The answer, sadly, for all of us, I think, is yes. I know in my life that's certainly sometimes true. And that's why I need the Lord Jesus Christ and I need the gospel of grace so, so deeply. Reputation and reality. Now, in real life, obviously, there are times that uh, when reputation doesn't match reality, it's got very sad consequences. We all here know the name Bernie Madoff, right? In certain circles, he had a great reputation, a great reputation of someone that you could trust with your money and he would make good investments. And then reality was discovered, the biggest Ponzi scheme ever, ever discovered and found out. Uh, the Wizard of Oz and Bernie Madoff both represent illustrations of when there's a gap between reality and reputation and the person knows it. They know it. But how much more sad when there's a gap between reality and self-perception and the person doesn't know it. The person or the church or the individual, he or she remembers who they used to be, and they think they still are as they used to be. They think the reputation of old is still deserved today, but things are no longer like they were. Like an athlete who is way beyond his prime but hasn't retired, he thinks he's still got game, but it's way in the past, and it's not being recovered in perhaps uh, his or her case. Well, I believe the message to the church at Sardis is a message to a church that was self-deceived. You know, one of the objections we always hear about Christianity is what? Well, there's so many hypocrites in the church. You know what? Jesus agrees with that accusation. <laughs> he agrees that there are a lot of people who are professing to be Christians that don't really have anything real going on in their hearts and in their lives. And that's the kind of thing being talked about as God addresses the church at Sardis. He's speaking to Sardis. He's speaking to you and me. The message of this passage is not an easy message. It's a hard one. But like an alarm waking up a sleeping man in a burning building, it's a message that we really need to hear. 
Let me ask you to turn with me to Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6, reading from the New International Version. Here's what the risen Christ says. To the angel of the, of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God, that is the Holy Spirit, seven being a number representing holiness, and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation, literally. You have a name of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I've not found your deeds complete in the sight of God. Not complete in terms of quantity, but quality. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. It was the gospel. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people, literally, you have a few names in Sardis, who have not sold their clothes. That is, not sinned in this way. They will walk with me, a relationship in heaven, dressed in white, for they are worthy. White representing purity and victory. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life. In this city, when someone was to pass away, their name was removed from the citizenry. This is his way of saying you'll have eternal life. But I will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Oh, Lord, take your word now. Speak to our hearts. Let us see the Lord Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen. This church had a reputation for being alive, but they were dead. They had a reputation for being active, but they were asleep. Let's look at the example of Sardis. Let's see the reason this happens in people's lives and in churches' lives. Let's look at ourselves and let's look at the solution. You're going to see here on the screen a picture of some of the ruins of Sardis. Uh, some people think that this was uh, a, a temple to Artemis, but later a church was built upon this same site. And if that's true, then perhaps the church heeded what Jesus says in this passage. They did repent and they were restored. Now, Sardis was a legendary city in Asia Minor. In the 7th century BC, it was the capital of the kingdom of Lydia. Gold was discovered there. And the kings of Lydia and the kings of Sardis were renowned for their wealth. The Persians captured this area in the 6th century BC and set up headquarters of administrative uh, arena there in Sardis. It was part of the fabled royal road that connected Sardis to the Persian cities to the east. And by the time the New Testament is written, it was part of the Roman province of Asia. The history of the city and the history of the church in this city mirror one another. In both cases, these people were wealthy and were arrogant. They thought they could never be brought down. Well, you see, actually, Sardis was built upon a big hill, uh, 800 feet from the plain below it up to where the city was. And there was only one path up. And so they thought they were very, very safe. They could never be conquered, they thought. But twice, because of slackness, because of inattention, because of sleepiness and drowsiness, because of pride and arrogance and presumption, twice they were conquered. They were conquered by the Persians in the 6th century B.C. by Cyrus, and they were conquered by Antiochus of the Greeks in the 3rd century B.C. Both times because of inattention, because of drowsiness, because of pride and arrogance, and because of presumption. So when Jesus says in this passage, wake up, wake up or I will come to you at an hour you don't know and you don't expect, that hit at the core of their memory as a city and as a church. 
Not only in, in that way did this passage hit home, uh, because of the drowsiness of this city, so to speak, their best days were behind them in many ways. It was a city on decline. Economically, financially, politically, in every other way, their best days were in the past, much because of their own lack. Well, the church in Sardis had exactly the same problems. They had had a wonderful past, they were proud of it in the present, and they were presumptive about the future. That's what was going on in this church. Exactly what was the sin of this church? Now I want you to notice something. In the previous two churches, the risen Christ has rebuked the church at, at Pergamum and Thyatira because of, of shocking kinds of things. That they were allowing some of their members to be involved in pagan worship that involved immorality and adultery and, and all kinds of awful, awful things. Well, that is never even mentioned in this letter, is it? And yet the rebuke to this church is in some ways much more severe than the previous two. Jesus says here, there are only a few of you that are walking with me faithfully. He says to this church, most of you are dead. Most of you spiritually are asleep. Now I want you to get the picture. The doctrines were all orthodox. No heresy being uh, coddled. The activities were there with, with vibrancy. But despite this great reputation, and despite all this pride they had about themselves, that they were not like these other churches, Jesus gives them a resounding rebuke. He says, you're actually dead. You're actually asleep. Now, how does the church go from being spiritually alive and spiritually well and healthy to being a church that is actually asleep and dead, all while looking good on the outside, all while having a stellar reputation. Well, the problem is really more common than you'd like to think. As a director or pastor of church planting, I've also tried to, to make it my business to understand why churches get sick and why churches die. I don't know if you know it, but there are more churches every month, every day in our country that are being closed it's being, they're being boarded up and shuttered up. They're closing down. More churches being closed every year in America than are being started. And there are a lot of people starting a lot of churches. <laughs> How is it that churches get sick and die? Often the death of a church takes a whole generation. But often the church falls asleep. It begins to slumber 20 or 25, maybe 30 years before it dies. And it usually falls asleep at the height of when it looks successful. That's the truth. Why is it that churches have this kind of pattern sometimes? Well, I think there are several reasons. One is simply this, shifting demographics. Shifting demographics. Sometimes the neighborhood around a church starts to change in terms of socioeconomics or the ethnic or the racial groups around the church. And the church simply never makes a transition to reach its new neighbors. That's been happening in the last 25 years in South Florida in a huge way. It, it happened here in Atlanta in the 20th century in a lot of ways. It happens a lot. The church never flexes to reach the new people that live next door. Secondly is an unwillingness to serve a younger generation. Uh, this is happening all over the place in our country as well. The truth of the matter is a lot of church leaders only care about their own generation. And even more so, a lot of church members only care about their own generation. 
Uh, that's a very sad thing to have happen. It usually goes something like this. If the leaders of a church that are over 50 and the people of the church over 50 never change the way they do ministry to connect with young adults, I'm not talking about changing theology. I'm not even talking about changing what we refer to as philosophy of ministry. I'm just talking about the style of ministry. If they never change those things in ways that are biblically allowed, the days of that church are numbered. They really are. The days are numbered. It's only a matter of time before it folds up. And often the changes don't take place early enough. Those are two of the reasons. The third reason is heresy. Uh, churches close uh, rightfully for a good reason. When those churches leave biblical truth and embrace heresy, that happens a lot. And then lastly, and I think this is the most important one, dead orthodoxy. Dead orthodoxy. Problem number four usually precedes problems two and three, in my opinion. When a sta- church is at the stage of dead orthodoxy, here's the picture. All the beliefs are biblical and scriptural. All the activities are good activities, and the church is probably very busy. But there's no passion for Jesus. As Paul used the phrase in one of his letters, there's a form of godliness, but there's no power. There's no passion. There's no heart for Christ, though there's a lot of activity for Christ. And what happens is the church begins to be a church of dead orthodoxy. Everything's orthodox. Everything is right, but there's no life. This last week, I was speaking with A.J. Sherrill, one of our other teaching team members who's our pastor for young adults, and A.J. pointed out to me how there's often a a parallel between the rise and decline of nations and the rise and decline of churches. Think about how it often starts. It starts with a birth of a church or a birth of a nation because of a mission, and they have a strong sense of mission. The nation or the church is then built as they pursue that mission, and there is growth and there is improvement. And then comes the stage of success. And then with success comes wealth and affluence. And then after wealth and affluence, often, and this is the dangerous part, a love of comfort. And the love of comfort leads to apathy. And the apathy leads to decline and death. That's the story of many nations. And that's the story of many churches. In many, many ways, the problem of the church of Sardis and the problem of the church of many churches where there's dead orthodoxy is simply the problem of pride. That's it, pride. The church at Sardis was a prideful church, I think. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the great uh, apologist and defender of the Christian faith, once made the observation that there's one quality that most all of us detest when we see it in someone else, but we rarely admit to it ourselves or even see it in ourselves, and it is pride. Isn't that right? He says that pride, in fact, is the, is the complete anti-God state of mind. And my friends, pride is destructive to a church, and pride is destructive to a Christian. Pride comes to churches and pride comes to Christians for all kinds of reasons. We can be proud of our accomplishments. We can be proud of our activities. We can be proud of ourselves in comparison to other people. We can be proud of our doctrines. We can be proud of our enthusiasm or our, our emotion. We can be proud of our leaders and our pastors. We can be proud for all kinds of reasons. But pride destroys a humble sense of dependence. Pride 
destroys a dependence upon God. And God never shows up when there's no dependence on God. That's just the way it goes. One of the things that really can, can, be show, can show us that in this passage, I think that's what's going on. One of the things that can clue us in that pride is active in our hearts is this. When we set out to make a name for ourselves, watch out anytime you want to make a name for yourself. In this passage, the Greek word name, tohanama, comes up four times in this passage. I think it's a theme. I don't think it's an accident. The first time is this. In the passage here when he says, I know that you have a name of being alive, a reputation for being alive. The word literally is a name. You have a name for being alive, but you're really dead. Secondly here, he says in this passage, there are a few names in your church who have not soiled their garments, so to speak. A few people, but literally the word is names. A few names that have not fallen into this sin. And then for those who do remain faithful to Christ, it says that Jesus will give two rewards. It says here that I will not take your name out of the book of life, and I will confess your name before the Father. Name, 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 name. Your name can have significance because it's subservient to the name of Jesus. Or your name can have no real significance at all. I think that's what's going on here. And what's going on in this passage, I think, is the church at Sardis was so desirous of making a name for itself. Of having a great reputation. And they looked around at these other churches and what was going on in these other churches. And they patted themselves on the back. And they became very, very prideful. And in their pride, they got a long way from Jesus. Active for Jesus but not in love with Jesus. As Jesus accused the Pharisees of his day, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. It's like John Piper, the great pastor up in Minnesota, puts it. These people wanted God to make much of them, but they were not making much of the name of Jesus. Let me ask you this question. Make an observation and then ask you a question. The observation is this. In your heart and in my heart, someone's name is reigning supreme. Whose name is it? In your heart, is your own name preeminent? If you're a leader of this church in your heart, is perimeter church's name preeminent? Or is the name of Jesus preeminent in your heart? I want you to know that Randy Pope and I and every leader of our church want the preeminent name of your heart to be the Lord Jesus Christ. That is to be the name that is above all names. A telltale sign of when this kind of pride is really coming into our hearts and and, and gaining root in our heart is this, is when we get all caught up in reputation management. You know what reputation management feels like? It feels like this. Instead of just admitting that we are seeking that we are weak sinners in need of a great Savior, we start trying to manage our reputation and make a good impression. Two of the idols that are always hounding my heart and and that I have to battle with all the time are the idols of approval and achievement. And the two of them usually go hand in hand. The near idol is achievement. The far idol is approval. So that if I'm not careful, I'm trying to get people's approval through achievement. And I'll tell you what, because of that, I know a lot about reputation management. I really do. (laughs) It's the truth. Maybe you do as well. I remember years ago taking a personality profile, and at the end of the profile it said, this personality would benefit by remembering you win some, you lose some. 
Boy, that hit home, and the reason I remember it is I don't like to lose, and I don't like to be seen as losing. Reputation management. What's the solution to this? What is the solution? Uh, this last week, I was having my personal devotions, my quiet time, and I often use uh, a devotional called Morning and Evening by C.H. Spurgeon. Spurgeon was, I think, the greatest preacher who ever lived, uh, uh, a British preacher in London in the 19th century. He wrote a devotional called Morning and Evening. Each day, there's a morning devotional and an evening devotional, and golly, 150 years it is later, it is still absolutely terrific. Well, last week on the reading for March 5th, it was uh, from the passage in 1 Thessalonians that says, let us not be like others who are asleep. Now, when I saw that, I thought to myself, huh, maybe this could be used in my sermon, just maybe, you know? It's not like I'm real smart. I didn't go find this on my own, but God just sort of dropped it in my lap. And when I started reading this passage in 1 Thessalonians and reading what Spurgeon said, I thought, wow, this is exactly what I need to hear about how to stay alive and alert spiritually. Listen to the passage in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 and following. You'll see it on the screen. Paul says, so then let us not sleep as others, but let us be alert and sober. He's speaking here of anticipating the return of Christ. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, the kingdom of light, let us be sober. And the word sober here means alert. It means well-balanced. It gives the picture of a soldier who is in position, ready to fight, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. The picture of a guard alert, like the guards at Sardis were not alert. Verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. There's the cross. So that whether we're awake or asleep, meaning literally here, physically alive or dead, we will live together with him, always living in him. Therefore, he says, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. Now, notice what Spurgeon says about this. Don't miss it. Keep reading with me. That's a lot of reading, I know. Spurgeon says, there are many ways to encourage alertness among Christians. Allow me to strongly recommend one. Believers should openly share with each other about the ways of the Lord. The Pilgrim's Progress, in The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, Christian and hopeful say to each other as they travel toward the celestial city, to prevent drowsiness along the way, let's have a good conversation. Christian asks, brother, where should we begin? And hopeful answers, where God began with us. I think that's great. He goes on to say, Christians who isolate themselves from others and walk through life alone are likely to be drowsy. But if you fellowship with other Christians, you will stay wide awake. You'll be refreshed and encouraged, and you'll make faster progress toward the road to heaven. Yet, as you meet with others to discuss the ways of God, take care that the subject of your discussions remains the Lord Jesus. Let your eye of faith be continually focused upon Him. Let your heart be full of Him. And let your lips always speak of His great worth. Dear friends, if you live close to the cross, you will not sleep. Golly, that's beautiful. If you live close to the cross, you will not sleep. I think he's saying here just what is said in verse 3 of our passage. In verse 3, the risen Christ says, remember what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. 
What is it that you received and heard? It was the gospel. It was the message of the cross. When he says, uh, obey it, that literally means keep it. Hang on to it. Don't lose the message of the cross. Don't lose the gospel of grace. But instead, repent. He's taking them back to where they started, the gospel of grace. Randy is well pointed out here in our church that the gospel wrongly understood and wrongly preached and wrongly believed will lead to disobedience and a distance from Christ and a spiritual lethargy. But the gospel truly understood, the gospel of grace truly embraced, the gospel of grace truly focused upon will always lead to greater obedience. It produces alertness. It produces life. It produces daily renewal. You wake yourself up spiritually daily by being graced again, as a friend of mine refers to it. Graced again. The last few minutes of this message are going to be the most important one. Here's the question. How does making much of Christ, that's what we're talking about, staying close to Christ. How does staying near the cross and how does keeping the gospel of grace lead us to being alive and awake? Let me first define the gospel of grace. What is the gospel of grace? The gospel of grace simply says, I was a sinner before I was converted. I needed Christ to forgive me and change me. But I'm still a sinner saint after conversion. I need Christ daily. He is now the only source of my forgiveness. He's the only source of my transformation. And Jesus is even the hero of my obedience. It's all a work of grace. It's all a work of Christ. Well, how does making much of Christ and staying near the cross and keeping the gospel lead me to be awake. Well, first of this, it produces humility about our past and our present accomplishments and our fruitfulness. You see, if I really understand the gospel of grace, there's no way I can pat myself on the back. I can't be proud of what I've accomplished as a Christian. I can't be proud of anything that's true of me as a believer. It's all been of grace. It's not because of me. And the gospel produces a beautiful holiness that keeps us alive and awake. Number two is this. It frees us from reputation management and enables us to openly admit our brokenness, our weakness, and our sin. I don't have to live in the fear of man. I don't have to live for the praise of man. I can freely admit I'm a mess up. I'm done with reputation management. I can admit where I'm blowing it. I spend a lot of my time with pastors because my job now is training pastors and equipping pastors. And I'll tell you, it's a wonderful and beautiful thing to see how many ministers I see today because of the gospel in their hearts are free to admit where they're weak and where they're sinful. They're done with reputation management in a way that's refreshing. And I frankly never used to see years ago. It frees us from reputation management. Thirdly is this, the gospel of grace helps us to embrace repentance as a daily lifestyle, not as a shaming, occasional experience. There was a time in my Christian life in which I really thought, if I'm a good Christian, I will only rarely need to repent, and it will be a shameful thing when I have to. That's such a bad way to think. Last night when he served communion here, Bob Carter quoted Martin Luther, the leader of the Protestant Reformation, that the Christian is always sinning, always repenting, and always being forgiven. That's beautiful. The faster, the more quickly I repent, the closer I stay to Jesus. Repentance is the daily lifestyle of the believer. Number four, the gospel of grace makes us secure in our relationship with our Heavenly Father so that we appropriately receive training and discipline and we benefit from it. After my message last week, a young man came up to me and he said, Bob, what I've noticed is that for many of us who are young, 
He's probably in his 20s. We are insecure if we are disciplined by the Heavenly Father. We feel like God doesn't love us. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. The gospel of grace can make you so secure in your relationship with the Father that even when he has to correct you, you don't feel that you're far away from him. You know that you're loved by him. Number five, the gospel of grace places our attention on future grace. How God will make much of the name of Jesus and how our calling is to do the same thing. And then lastly, I'll add number six to what you've got in print already. The gospel of grace is the strongest motive for obedience. And in fact, it's the only acceptable motive for godly obedience. That is, obedience that actually pleases God. There's no other motive for obedience that pleases God. And it's the only source of our power to obey God. Stay close to the cross. Let me say a word here today. If you're checking out Christianity and checking out what it means to be a follower of Christ, you may be thinking, this message isn't for me. I don't have a reputation of being a Christian. I know that I'm not a Christian. You know what? You're in a great spot. You're self-aware. You're not playing games. But you may be wondering, how is it I go from death to life? And it, it is by looking to the cross of Christ. Go to the cross of Christ. Place your faith in the cross of Christ and in his resurrection. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to change you. Ask him to come into your heart. That's the way it all begins. But Christian, I need to say this to you as well. Believer, live near the cross. If I say to the seeker and the skeptic, go to the cross, I will say to every believer here, live near the cross. If you live near the cross, you will stay awake. If you live near the cross, you will not become drowsy. If you live near the cross, Christ will live near to you. And then there will be a name that is above every name in your heart. It will be the name of the Lord Jesus. And you can be done with reputation management. And you can see the praise of Christ lived out in your life every day. Let's strive for that. Let's pray as we close. Oh, Lord Jesus, we do thank you and we praise you that you have a better plan for us. Thank you that your plan saves us from managing our reputation and allows us to have a name that is above our own name, the name of Jesus, that we would give him praise, that we would give him adoration. Lord, keep us alive, keep us awake, all for the praise of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.